you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on SaluteCombat.com. I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC heads back to Fight Island yet again after a very exciting UFC 253. We're following it up with Holly Holm versus Irene Aldana and a couple other pretty excited women's fights on this main card. We'll be breaking down three of those for you as part of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays, which of course is also going to give you an underdog and a parlay that we think you should play this week. Plus, we're going to be doing two interviews with fighters who are now on Fight Island, ready to go. First, Casey Kenny stops by to talk about his fight with Haile Alatang and hoping to get more and more finishes. And then we talked to Jordan Williams about coming up through the MMA world with type 1 diabetes and his many, many shots on the Contender Series and finally getting the deal. So we're going to get to all that great content for you right now. And joining me today is Casey Kenny, who fights Haile Alatang at UFC Fight Island on October 3rd. Casey, I, I want to start by talking about your run in the UFC because it's damn impressive when you look back at it. Three and one, largely against grapplers, but obviously the one spot in there being a loss to Marab Dashvili, which, you know, looking back, he's now ranked number 13. H- how do you look back at this run so far? Do you feel that it's ultimately successful or does that, you know, like one blemish kind of hold you back from feeling great about it? Uh, no, you know, obviously, uh, definitely wasn't planning on losing ever, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, you know, everything kind of happens for a reason. And, uh, I think I'm going to learn, you know, I learned a lot from the Marab fight and, uh, you know, obviously knocked me out of the rankings, but, you know, came back strong and, uh, looking to make another run and, you know, uh, honestly, you know, I'm happy, happy to just be fighting and, uh, you know, living the UFC dream and, um, you know, I think, uh, I'll be right back in those rankings and right back where I want to be in, in no time. And, um, you know, uh, hopefully I, I do it this time, you know, with a bunch of finishes as well. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned a bunch of finishes. You, you got one of your first finishes in a while with a one-arm guillotine last time. Was that something that you like, you know, obviously with no finishes yet in the UFC, was that something you were pressing yourself kind of for in there, uh, back in May? Yeah. You know, um, Obviously, everybody likes a finish. You know, I came in off a off a knockout, and uh, you know, always looking to finish fights. My style of fighting is, you know, it's not there, not to just hang on you and try to try to win a decision. You know, I'm throwing big punches. I'm going for the submissions, and uh, when you fight, you know, some of the best in the world, sometimes that doesn't happen. But uh, I really think that I found a groove, and you know. Had to make a couple adjustments uh, once I got into the UFC with the with the higher level competition, and uh, you know I made a few of the few of those uh, adjustments, and uh, I think I can put these guys away now. And, and you mentioned too, you know, learning from the Marab fight and making adjustments. How, how much of that is due to the fact that you you pretty much got four guys out of the gate who who largely prefer to grapple? I mean, Louis Smolka is a little bit more of a striker, but the first three guys, if if you're looking at what they look like. Ray Borg, submission guy, you know, Manny Bermudez, submission guy, Marab Zabalashvili, huge wrestler. Do you feel like that's helped your progress? Yeah, um, you know, I didn't have many guys trying to take me down outside of the UFC. And uh, I realized that, you know, I need to defend those takedowns a little bit more. Even uh, And like you said, uh, the styles of those guys, especially like Borg and 
Marab, you know, they're very, you know, not many people shoot 20 takedowns uh, a fight. <laughs> you know, that's uh, it's a pretty high number. So, uh, you know, stylistically, I, I hadn't really fought many guys exactly like that. So uh, it was nice to kind of get that out of the way. You know, I don't think I'm going to run into uh, more grappling heavy guys than, you know, Bermudez. Marab and Ray Borg and then like you said Smoka you know he's turned into a little bit uh, of a striker and you know uh I, but I loved I loved that fight you know I loved the, the style of fight that he was going to bring and uh you know the last couple guys to bring that style of fight uh have went away early so um I think Alatang is going to be the next one love it now I'm curious too because you have a wrestling background do you feel like when you found MMA and you found so much success offensively did you maybe worried a little bit less defensively about wrestling or, or why did you feel like it was such a steep learning curve here in the early going and you had to learn some lessons? Uh, yeah, you know, just not having somebody trying to, to press you with takedowns like mm -hmm. that, you know, you get so good at, at stuff and takedowns and practice and everything. And, uh, you know, when you load up in the fight, you throw a little bit more into those punches and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of that as well, you know, uh, I think a lot of, the way I got taken down, uh, especially in the Marab fight, was more of uh, my striking and my grappling. Like when I was there, when I when I timed it right and I wrestled hard, you know, I stuffed a lot of takedowns. The only time he was getting me was when I, you know, I tried to take his head off with a big punch, and, you know, <laughs> kind of telegraphed it. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just like grappling adjustments that I needed to make. You know, it was also, you know, uh, just an MMA adjustment, really. Makes a lot of sense to me. Now, I'm curious, too, because I was doing a little background research on you. I actually heard you started judo before you started wrestling. Is that correct? Yeah, that was uh, – so I started judo when uh, I was five. When you were five? And that was – yeah, when I was five. And, and how long did you carry out with that, too? Is that a style that you still feel that you, like, hold some of those those past learnings, you know, even now that you're a cage fighter? Yeah, I mean, uh, judo was my, my roots, you know, um, I was multiple time national champion in judo and, uh, you know, considered, you know, pursuing an Olympic dream in judo as well. So, uh, I, I feel like I can definitely do that. You know, I got to show that a couple times, uh, you know, once against Bermudez, uh, I got to toss him with a judo throw there. Couldn't get out of the body lock, but, uh, an MMA fight is hard to use your judo. You know, I, I find more success with like, you know, uh, helping him in the clinch to, to, you know, clinch control to score shots and everything. But when you're slippery with no gi on, it, it's hard to do a lot of the traditional judo throws. But um, there's definitely uh, a lot of roots that are built into me, you know, that um, I, I believe came from judo. Well, it's interesting, too, that you said that you considered a, an Olympic career in judo. You're a national champion, multi-time national champion in judo. What what led you sort of away from that towards wrestling or towards MMA and, and away from your roots? Um, well, when I was graduating high school, you know, I obviously had the wrestling, uh, you know, I had a wrestling scholarship offer. And then I also took a quick visit to the Olympic Training Center and I considered, you know, doing some stuff like that. And, you know, ultimately a scholarship in wrestling close, a little closer to home, uh, was what the route I went. Um, but you know, everything happens for a reason, you know, I left that to become a fighter. So, uh, you know, I had a couple options there out of, out of high school and, um, you know, competed with the best of them during my, my younger judo days. 
Yeah, and, and now I'm curious too because you did say you left the University of Indianapolis to wind up pursuing a career in mixed martial arts with a scholarship there for wrestling too. What what was the reaction from your parents like when you told them you were leaving, <laughs> paid for college to go get punched in the head? <laughs> yeah, that didn't go over too well, uh, especially with my dad, you know. Uh, but hey, my parents are out here in Arizona now, and you know, honestly, they wouldn't be out here if it wasn't for me leaving and you know chasing a dream. So. They can thank me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the fight before I let you go here. You're fighting Haile Alatang. You said you're you're on a streak where you feel like you can put people away in this division. How do you see this one going? How do you see it ending? Uh, I'm going to put them away. You know, uh, first, second, third round, doesn't matter. Knockout, submission, uh, ground and pound. You know, I think uh, I'm just a, a, a overall uh, way better martial mixed martial artist. And, you know, anywhere the fight goes, I think I'm going to be uh, – you know, superior and uh, watch out for his big right hand and, you know, a, a decent body lock. And I think it's going to be a good night for me. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Casey Kenny, who fights Hollywood Holotang at UFC Fight Island on October 3rd. Casey, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks uh, for your time as well, Dan. And that interview with Casey Kenny is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, or jujitsu, it doesn't matter what you do. Because let me tell you something, Maroon Social is the best way to track your progress. And even better, they're running a deal right now where if you head on over to Maroon Social, you can get their premium app. No advertisements, bunch of extra features, just $9.99 for the whole year. That's right, for the whole year, it's an over an 80% savings on their usual price. So head on over, get that premium features, Maroon Social, wherever it is you download apps. And joining me today is Jordan Williams, who fights Nasuruddin Imavov at UFC Fight Island on October 3rd. So, Jordan, I want to start by talking about your time on the Contender Series because it certainly was a unique time. You're one of the only fighters to fight three times. You get a bizarre, like, calling it a no contest in the first fight. A split decision that clearly should have been yours in the second fight. How much extra pressure does that put on the third try there? And and how much pressure did you feel going into that fight? Well, it's the amount of pressure, you know, a baseball player has at the plate and he already missed his first two swings at bat. You know, and everyone's keep on saying how it's a third time's the charm. It's like, well, third time's also a strikeout. So <laughs> just that amount of pressure that comes with stepping up to the plate, you know, and then it's the third time in any sport, you know. Absolutely. And, and I'm just curious because, like I said, you know, that first one, it's clearly a win in, in my book and in most people's <laughs> books. And that, that second one, it's a split decision, also a win in a lot of people's books. Does that alleviate any of the pressure there? Because you you did have two great performances, you know, in the cage already. Or or did, you know, obviously, is it just the results that speak? Yeah, I mean, well, it, um, it's both the results speak. But, you know, I did come in with confidence. And now the pressure I'm feeling, like I said, I had I had two great things about the first time. Like you said, I won that first fight. A little bit of a controversy with the with the drug testing, with the marijuana. Um, second fight went my way. I I I, I won, but it didn't go my way on the judges. 
So by the time I came in here this third fight, I knew I could hang with the big boys. And I, and I have been competing at a high level for a long time. So the pressure was definitely lifted a little in that aspect from the, hey, I've been in a quiet arena when, you know, a lot of these fighters have never fought in a quiet arena before. This is my fourth time come on October 3rd. So, you know, uh, and before this third time I fought in a quiet arena, like, you know, I had been there. It, it's 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 new, but I was used to it, and um, it's uh, where was I going with that? It's you know, but I, I felt really ready. I felt ready, and the the show up there. It's just you know, what's Dana gonna think when I get the job done? You know, I, I was confident in myself I'd get the job done, even though that guy was as big as he was. You know, I always go into every fight expecting to win. But, you know, it, it's, it's the nervous part is, you know, is Dana really going to accept you? Are the judges going to accept you for the win, for the work that you put in? You know, I saw Dana offer a, a, de- a development deal to a heavyweight after he did a spinning back fist knockout. Like, so that's where a lot of the pressure comes from. It's like, you, you can't just be confident and safe that any performance will do it. You got you to gotta fight every performance and perform like it's your last time on stage. And does that change going into Fight Island here, too? Because obviously, you know, now you're not fighting for the contract. The contract is in your pocket. You you still want to go out there and get the win because the win bonus is nice and having a win on your record is nice. But but is the style of that you're approaching the fight feeling different? No, no, uh, it's not. I mean, it's going to be different because I feel like I am going to have a little bit of that pressure off my shoulders from – you know, having Dana be in there giving you a live interview. Uh, now, now going in there, but I have I have the the pressure. I got I got all these diabetics looking up to me, and people with autoimmune diseases. Like my job is far from over. I need to go into the UFC, and I need to. It would be it would be amazing to go in there with a first round, second round, third round knockout. Get that uh, you know that bonus you were talking about fifty k when it hurt. And and then and just show because I can't just lose four or three and out and then lose my contract and gone because now I just I'm still representing all those diabetics. You can't just be like, hey, you're here, great, you're here. Now you just lost three fights in a row and you're gone. <laughs> and then and then and then Dana's like wiping off his forehead like, ooh, glad we got rid of that guy. We don't need any diabetics in here. So the pressure is still very much uh, very weighted. It just has a different flavor to it. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, too, because you seem to embrace the idea that you're you're sort of carrying the flag for diabetics and type 1 diabetics. You know, you don't seem to be bothered by that being the question that just about any interviewer asks you every single time. So I'm going to ask you a question here. You found out at 19 years old, right? And how difficult was it for you to come to grips with that in terms of being an athlete already? And was the mentality always that you were going to push forward through all of that? I mean, just like what you said, my mentality was always that I was going to push forward, which means that I did not come to grips right away. I was hearing from doctors from the start, well, you know, your life's going to have to change and everything, and you're easier, you're more susceptible to damage and 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 your cardio. And me, I'm like, dude, I've been fight, I, I have been wrestling and. And 
you're gonna and I bet have this lifestyle of a strong head forward uh type of mentality. And now you're gonna tell me that I can't be that person? Usually usually when when a doctor tells someone this, they're at a weak enough mind state to actually believe them. They're like four or six, you know, they're young. But me, I was already nineteen. I was just starting my uh, amateur career, and I found out I was diabetic right before I fought Max Griffin for a, a amateur title in Nevada. So, and, he, and he's and he's currently a UFC fighter, been in the UFC for like five years, and was ranked in the world at one point. So, I I did not accept it at all in the beginning. I you know I was you know I cried and everything, and I rejected it, and then and then uh, that just changed into no, I'm not stopping. And I won't stop. Well, I, I love that mentality. And, and you mentioned in there the cardio is one of the things they mentioned. Obviously, weight cutting being another big one. You know, like, I, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced a low blood sugar in a competition. But what would you say is, like, the biggest obstacle that you do have to overcome regularly? Uh, managing, I do sometimes get, slow, uh, get lows. And just, yeah, managing my sugars on a consistent basis. Uh, and you know, that's about, you know, that's about it. And, you know, cutting weight, I, now I walk around at 190 to 195. Um, I weighed in 181 at the scale. That was a great tactic I used to make that guy think that that's, that's just what I weigh, um, soaking wet. You know, I, 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 I lied and I didn't, I don't like to cut weight. I don't. And that's still true because I, I like to manage it. I'm a pro fighter, man. If, if I go to a fight 10 or 15 pounds over the night before wins, or can you really call yourself a professional across the board? I've been wrestling since second grade. I've been a diabetic who tried to cut weight. So I just don't cut it. I know that it doesn't work for me. I manage it. And I naturally weigh 185 after practice leading up to the fight, which means I walk around at 190, 192. And then when I get closer, sometimes I'm weighing like 182, 180 after practice, and I'm weighing like 186 before the fight. But that's just because I'm I'm clean with my diet because I have to be. And I think I use that tactic really well. I, I cut weight for half an hour. And I and I, I cut like six pounds extra weight, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, I can actually like fool the world, <laughs> fool this guy, and just like I could just keep this weight off for." I I actually I cut the one eighty two the night before, weigh-ins, and then I I realized what I could do. I I ate back up to one eighty six or drank up to one eighty six. Woke up at one eighty five. Cut. Uh, did another one mile run. Sat in the sun for half hour. I weighed one eighty. And then I, I I drank a pound of water before I stepped on the scale, and boom, 181 is the magic number. And then by the time, like, like two hours later that day, I'm 188. So weight, well, being, like, weight is not an issue for me. I, that was just something I kind of conned the, my competition with. But the main thing is just making sure my sugars are correct, that I don't go low. And when I'm at 85, I, I has a better chance of me doing so because when you cut weight as a diabetic, you have to eat. You know, you, you, like if you're like those lows I'm talking about, you know how you get rid of those lows? Well, you have to eat sugar. So it's like you're taking two steps down the ladder, one up, and then another two down, and another another one up. And I'm essentially cutting the same pound like three times. So 
me finding that one what one eighty five took a lot of the pressure off of my weight cut and let that momentum just build on my care for diabetes and just knowledge of training and, and gaining more skill as opposed to just losing weight. And did you did you have bad cuts before? Like when you had just found out you're diabetic, you're in your mm-hmm. amateur career, you're you're trying to cut extra weight and be in a smaller weight class. You, you, I'm assuming you had some bad cuts at, at at those points too, correct? Oh yeah, no, yeah, that's that's what helped motivate me to go 185. There was this one fight against Press and Sharp. He it was his last fight. After the fight, he told me like. This is my last fight. It was an honor, like, um, fighting. But, you know, this is my last fight. And you don't ever, as a fighter, you don't ever want to hear that. You want to hear, like, you, you're fighting some young gun who's a who's a badass, and, and you just and you just derailed him. I don't want to be the fact that I derailed him because he's old. You know, <laughs> like, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't add anything to my confidence. So, but during that fight, I cut a lot. Uh, before the fight, I cut a lot of weight. I cut the 170. I was weighing around like 200, 205. Like, like I said, I eat every meal. It, it, when you're cutting weight, it's hard to control your, your habits. And you just, when you're allowed to eat, sometimes you just eat. And and you can't turn it off because you, your body, your, your subconscious is like, I'm, you're finally giving us food. I'm not going to not eat all. Like, you know, so um, I had a hard weight cut that fight. I made it. I took him down, and I was I was piecing together my striking. For some reason, at this point in my career, I still wrestle, even when I'm winning on our feet. I, like you know, something just tells you to wrestle, and you and you do it, even though you don't need to. So I I take him down, and he, he scrambles up, and when I stood up back to my feet, that was the slowest I ever felt. <laughs> and this was round, and this was round one. I felt my calves and my legs lock up, and I thought to myself. This is gonna be trouble if this goes another round. I gotta finish this. So I, I that feeling right there was scarier than any other feeling I've had in that fight. Like to me, having no gas in my legs after round one is scarier than getting the potential to get knocked out by a bigger guy. Yeah, I mean that makes sense to me. Now I, I got one more just diabetic based question here, and, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about your fight. You know, you mentioned managing your sugars. Obviously, you can do that in training and in lead up. And you mentioned, you know, you, you kind of got to do it a little bit while you're you're losing weight or you're watching your diet and you got to, you know, mm-hmm. eat some sugar at some point in time. What about in competition? Like, have you ever had a situation where you're starting to feel a little blood sugar in competition? And what are you even, you know, in MMA, what are you even allowed to do in order to manage that? Yeah, so luckily... The USC, they have drinks back there that the commission has approved. They have those body armor drinks, and they have sugar in them. And I use those if I'm ever feeling low. And to answer your first question, no, I have not been close to feeling a low before fight because I'm honestly, I, I, I reduced my insulin injections that day. There's a there's a there's a long lasting insulin that you're supposed to take every morning, and I, and I I just minus that dose dramatically, or dramatically, so that I have more control with my fast with my fast acting insulin. So I use um and and I have the fact that 
I'm just extremely paranoid, you know, I was like extremely like just ready and just thinking about the fight and I'm thinking, oh, if my blood, I cannot let my blood sugar go low, you know, because <laughs> they said, because I can have those sugary drinks before the fight, but as soon as that cage door shuts, I can, I can only have water in between rounds. So, and, and knowing that I know I got to get my blood sugar to an unhealthy level that's ultimately healthy during the fight. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that, that definitely, uh, obviously the, the long lasting insulin there makes a lot of sense not to have in your system and, and working against you in the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the fight. You're fighting Nasoruddin Imavov. I'm not sure if you know too much about him, but he's a guy who fancies himself a striker. He comes from Europe. Mm-hmm. You, me- you mentioned that you lean on your wrestling and you have leaned on your wrestling in the past, but now you sort of find success on the feet sometimes too and just let it happen there. Do you see this as a fight where you, you plan on leaning on your wrestling a little bit? Uh, well, just to mix up the the flow. And and my man, did you just say some success? <laughs> I did I say had, something, so have, we'll call that a slip. <laughs> <laughs> I have had my last six fights at 185, I've, or five of them have been knockouts, and only one of them have been knockouts via the ground. You know, I, I, I've been piecing together my striking for a minute now, and and... He and the one guy I didn't knock out, I had him on skates in round one and three. So my my striking's there, and this guy calls himself the the Russian sniper, Romanovin. Come October third, we're gonna put your accuracy to the test. You know, um, we're gonna we're gonna see how hard and how accurate you can throw those punches um, against me. Like man, I like. And if you think your chin is better than if you think you're stronger than the last guy I fought, well, then that's, you're going to need that confidence, man. Like, this guy, he, he he's good. I watched his film. He has a nice straight right, a nice counter uh, lead hook, and he finished a fight with his with his knee, with a knee to the body. So he, he's he got some credentials himself, but let's, like, he's got a Kimura finish, a ground-and-pound finish, a rear naked finish, and then something like four finishes are on the ground. Do you do you honestly think I'm gonna let it go to the ground if I don't want it there? If I'm not on top, like I just there's an eight time world champion Brazilian Jiu Jitsu trainer with Anderson Silva, trainer with Leo Machida, trainer with Jacare Souza from Brazil, and he didn't have nothing on me. He could not get me down to the ground. Do you honestly think this Russian fool? With with a little bit of the credentials that the with a or excuse me with a fraction of the credentials, the last guy I fought gonna take me down. Nah, tripping. Like it, like nah. This guy, and and he's gonna go into an arena with no like with his UFC jitters. I don't like my UFC jitters gone. Ben had Ben had those if I even had them. And in my first time in the UFC. Uh, via contender series, I knocked the dude out in the third round on a five-day notice. So I, I'm like, uh, we all know what I can do uh, inside the octagon. Now, Nazan, what can you do? What can you do when you have those UFC jitters? Those are the loudest voices and emotions going on inside your head, and you don't have the crowd to silence them. People think that the crowd, like the crowd, is the reason for the jitters. Nah, 
Nah, you are going to have them regardless just because it is UFC. There's cameras, Dana White, everything. And at a moment in your life when, you're, when your nerves and your emotions are the loudest um, voice in the room, you ain't got that crowd to hide behind. So I'm, I'm like, I'm feeling confident, I'm ready, and I'm experienced the, the face nosity come October 3rd. All right. Well, I usually like ending these things by getting a prediction, too. You said you want to see what he's got for you on the feet. Well, how do you see this one ending? He's going down round one, knockout. But I, w- um, I would like to get the last to a third round. I get a, I get a performance of the night with a knockout, and then I get that. Then we both get 50 Gs on top of that for performance or for fight of the night. That's what I see. Like, either one of those predictions works just okay with me or just fine with me. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Jordan Williams, who fights Nesoradim Imovov at UFC Fight Island on October 3rd. Jordan, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Right, thanks for the call and let me, you know, plead my case about how I'm going to knock this fool out. Well, we hope you enjoyed those interviews with Casey Kenny and Jordan Williams. I, once again, am Daniel Gumby Freeland, joined now by Shockwave Dave Tremonte. D- Dave, obviously a pair of very interesting title fights this past weekend. Let's chat about them real quick. I want to start with Idesanya, an absolutely masterful performance. Is this the next megastar of the sport? Is he, like, transcending Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey status? Well, Gumby, you basically took the words right out my mouth. It was a masterful performance. It was absolutely tremendous. It was everything you'd want to see out of a rising star, which he is. I mean, you combine his skill set with his social media game, which is by far the best in the business. Uh, and you know what? Controversy creates cash. He did a little dry humping after the match was over. A lot of people were talking about that on the internet after, after the event. I mean, this is good in the way that, you know, news in 2020 is good for the sport. It gets people talking. He's a controversial figure. And I get the sense that he's in it for the long haul, whereas Connor always felt like it was more about you know, maybe his brand. And I always felt like once the the Floyd talk started, we weren't going to see a lot more of Conor McGregor. I feel like we have at least a few more years of Israel Adesanya, which is super exciting. And I have to tell you, when I was watching the fight, the person he actually reminds me the most of, and I'm not going to say Anderson Silva, and I'm definitely not going to say John Jones, although that is a fight that interests me, He reminds me of Habib Nurmagomedov, and I will tell you why. I know that sounds crazy. What Habib is to grappling in the UFC, being on that other level from other fighters, and Habib is comparable or at least can get by with his striking to get to his grappling, I think of the inverse. That is what Israel is with his striking. It's another level. It's multidimensional. It's the kicks, it's knees, it's elbows, it's almost everything but a headbutt. And it's just a world above every other fighter in his division. And then his takedown defense, and we obviously know Costo probably wanted to get that to the ground, as have other fighters, it's good enough to keep the fight where he is more masterful over his opponent. So that's actually what I thought of in the same way that Khabib is a different level for grappling. Israel Adesanya, to me, is on just a different planet when it comes to striking. Yeah, I, I so he, you definitely threw me off when you said that because I'm thinking stylistically, but you're right from the, 
not from a stylistic sense, but from like a conceptual stance that yeah. like he he is just like he has one just absolutely beautiful facet of his game that he is able to use almost all the time because his other facet of his game it's way behind where his striking is, but at the same time it's it's so it's good enough that he can get by with it. And hopefully he never has to use it because, like, I could watch him strike all day, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's like watching a magician go to work or, I don't know, a master craftsman. Whatever fucking analogy you want to use, he's the one – he's probably the best striker we've seen in the past five to ten-ish years. And I think the game has evolved. So you could almost even say maybe he's going to go down as the greatest striker in UFC history up to this point. But I mean, did Costa even land a shot against him? <laughs> I, think, I think he landed. I think he landed twelve punches. They said, and like <laughs> he he had shut people out worse than that before, right? Like he had shut Derek Brunson out. I think Derek Brunson landed four, if I'm remembering correctly. And so like he's done worse to people. But let's remember that that twelve strikes is over almost two rounds, like a round and a half time. Costa was landing like one and a half strikes a minute. That, dude, that that's, like, incredible for a guy who's, like, sort of known for, like, being an aggressive power puncher and, like, j- just to absolutely make him miss with everything. And, and I think that's the thing, too, that we haven't even mentioned about Israel Adesanya that makes him so special. His cage craft is incredible. The way he maintains distance, the way he yeah. forces you to fight at his range and not your range I mean, I mean, like, we can keep drawing this comparison with Habib, which is kind of silly, but, like, Habib makes you fight him against the cage, no matter what. You you can go in with a game plan that you're going to strike Habib, or you're going to keep him at distance, or you're going to do this, or you're going to do that. You're against the cage against Habib, and it's going to happen. And it's almost the opposite with, with Israel Adesanya. You have to go into that fight thinking to yourself, good God, I do not want to stay in Israel Adesanya's kicking range, because I'm doomed if I do. And yet, that's what everybody seems doomed to do. Everybody winds up in that kicking range with Israel Adesanya while he lights you up, makes you overly aggressive, and then makes you pay for your aggression. I was going to say, and then when people become or see a little bit of success backing him up, let's say they don't get sniped with a kick or an elbow or a punch, and they back him up to the cage, he is tremendous at circling off the cage. The fight is always going to take place for him in the center of the octagon. And, you know, I guess it leads to the question who I see no one in the middleweight division. If you want to give me a name, give me a name, or what do you want to see him do? And I know you're always a fan of people defending their belts, but I mean, is this going to land at him at two Oh five? I mean, like I'm having a really tough time deciding if there's anything for him there, because it's, I hate saying these words. He's cleaned out middleweight. Middleweight is done for him. Like, if you look at the list of people he beat to get to Paul Acosta, he's already gotten by Yoel Romero. It wasn't super pretty. It wasn't super fun to watch. But Yoel Romero is a loss on, or that's a loss on Yoel Romero's record. He's got that one. He's got Robert Whitaker, who he knocked cold. He's got Calvin Gastelum. He's got Derek Brunson. Like, dude, like, there is not too many people left for him to fight in that top 10, apart from I mean, like, Jack Hermanson is still on there. Darren Till is mm. still on there. And, and Jared Cannonier. And, and if you're going to tell me that any of them are going to force him to grapple or any of them are going to outstrike him, 
dude, I'm going to laugh at you. He'll beat all three of them in one night if he had to. And then we have nobody for him to fight in that division. The Till matchup actually interests me just from a striking perspective. I do think Till has, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm picking Ida Sonya. The Till that's the most I guess intriguing of the three, definitely. Of the three, right. That's that's exactly it. And honestly, now, Israel Adesanya said this. I'm not doing any TMZ breaking news here or analytics by saying this, but the person who actually fought him best was Yoel Romero. It was boring as fuck, but Yoel Romero didn't come forward because if you come forward and you throw one at Israel Adesanya, you're getting three in receipt, maybe even four, like before you can blink. So what Romero did... You see what happens when someone doesn't want to exchange and maybe try to wait for that one lucky shot. It's going to be a boring fight, but that's kind of what you have to do against him. I'm super interested to see where he goes from here. I do think a move to 205. And again, just to take it back to Connor, because that's really the last meteoric rise of someone, you know, Connor at 155, 100, even 70 pounds, I guess you could say, uh, for his fights there, but definitely at 155 and 145. He had the Celtic cross that left that could knock anyone out. He, much like Adesanya, I think, won the title in his fourth or fifth fight. But then he went up instantly and and lost to Nate Diaz. And that kind of took us down a weird side road, almost like an alternate timeline, if you will. Then he had to get the win back against Diaz at 170. And then he absolutely obliterated Eddie Alvarez. And that's kind of what we just saw in Adesanya's real first title defense, if you don't want to count Romero. He obliterated Paul Acosta. So I feel like the two of them are very similar in what they bring to the table. But do you notice that we're never talking about, oh, wait till Adesanya faces a wrestler? And that's because we know for a fact he's actually very tough to take down. His takedown defense is very good. And there aren't these same questions that there were against Connor. And here's another thing that separates him from Connor. We saw very early on, and I know he was injured, but even in that uh, Mendez fight, uh, Connor, his gas tank is not good. And we saw it in the Nate Diaz fight a year later. Connor tires himself out. And I think Faraz Zahabi did a great job breaking this down, that when you typically have like a power punch, it also means that you get tired as well. And Connor gets tired as well. And that's not something we really worry about with Adesanya. So to me, you know, you talk about Connor's meteoric rise and all he brought to the table with his personality. And yes, he had a whole country behind him. But Adesanya is absolutely as entertaining in interviews and on social media, and I think he's a better all-around MMA fighter than Connor. I know that that second part is true, and and I definitely think he's a better overall fighter. I am going to debate real quickly, and then we'll get to fight talk to parlays. I am going to debate real quickly that Yoel Romero was the best one to fight him because I'm going to go out on a limb, and, and this may sound crazy. I think Kelvin Gastelum was the best one. To no, fight you're him. right. You're right. Yeah, because Kelvin right, Gastelum. You're right. Kevin Gastelum was willing to eat some of his shots, which are kind of crazy. It's kind of a crazy sentence that he's willing to eat some of Israel Adesanya's shots. But he also tagged him a few times. Like, Izzy's face was a little messed up, which is so crazy to think about that Costa's asking for a rematch right now when he fought him worse than... I mean, like, pick a name of the people he fought him. Like, like every single but person has fought Israel Adesanya better than Paulo Costa. Yeah, no, he, he's got to just sit on the sidelines and just chill out. But I'll tell you who's not going to chill out. That's us, because it's time for our favorite segment on the show, Fights, Dogs, and Parlays for UFC Fight Island this coming weekend. Got a very interesting pair of ladies' fights, uh, basically co-headlining this, if you will, although Holly Holmes is the real headliner, but a really nice co-main event, too. Uh, so we'll get that broken down for you but before we do uh one may wonder does any company sponsor this segment of fight stars and parlays 
Absolutely. Fight Stocks and Prolays is brought to you by Maroon Social, the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you train kickboxing, judo, sambo, or any other martial art, track your progress with Maroon Social wherever it is you download apps. So it's funny to think about the fact that Holly Holm has been in the UFC now for five years. And in those five years, she is six and five and a former champion at that. And she got TKO'd by Amanda Nunes, as many people do, but then came back with a unanimous decision victory over Raquel Pennington. And I believe this to be a really important fight for her, not just because it would bring her to 500 in the UFC, but it puts her right back in title contention. She needs to string together a couple of wins here. Probably a highlight real finish wouldn't hurt her as, as well. So she is the minus 125 favorite. Irene Aldana, a very slight dog at plus 105, on a two-fight win streak. She lost to Raquel Pennington last year, July 2019, and has since beat Vanessa Mello via unanimous decision and coming off a massive KO performance of the night, KO win over Ketlin Vieira back in December of 2019. So first time fighting in the wonderful year that is 2020. Slight dog to Holly Holm. Who you got? So I, I really badly want to pick Arena Eldana in this fight for all the reasons you said. Like, you know, Holly Holm has had 150 title shots uh, in her career, even though she's only fought 11 times in the UFC. It, it would be really nice to see fresh blood. And in addition to that, I like Aldana's matchup against Amanda Nunes in that I think it would be kind of like a fun striking exchange. But I just see Holly Holm as being like such a terrible matchup for her here in that I think Holly Holm probably just pins her against the cage and because we've seen this like development of wrestler holly home lately right like that's she beat megan anderson by not punching megan anderson by just taking her down and using some ground game and while we all think of holly home is the kickboxer who kicked around Razi in the head she's really developed into like a wrestler who holds people against the cages lands some short elbows or some rabbit punches in like wins fights that way i mean she beat raquel pennington that way too so, like, I just see Arena Aldana not being strong enough to get off the cage, not being strong enough to get out from underneath Holly Holm, and Holly Holm winning, like, a pretty freaking boring 25-minute decision here. I don't disagree with the word you just said. I'm not expecting fireworks. I'm expecting Holly Holm to fight her typical measured fight where she wins on points. Uh, this could be a little more firework-y, if you will. Juliana Pena is a minus-115 favorite. Jermaine Durandamy, former champion at 145, LOL, 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 LOL. Uh, she is a minus-1. Oh, she's minus-105, too. I actually thought she was uh, betting off at a plus. So Vegas doesn't even really know what to make of this. Juliana Pena is 1-1 one one in her last two. Uh, lost by armbar to Valentina Shevchenko back in 2017. Massive layoff. I think she had a kid, if I'm not mistaken. She, she did indeed, uh, but, yes. <laughs> yep. And all, but also injured, too. So kind of a crazy two years for her. And then uh, beat Nico Montano via unanimous decision last year, July. So it's been a year for her, which always worries me. She's fought one time in three years. And she's coming back to someone who hasn't been an easy puzzle for anyone to solve other than Amanda Nunes, really, um, and I guess you could say Holly Holm came very close in a controversial decision. But that being said, Jermaine Durandamy is four, sorry, is five and two in her last seven, and the two losses 
Arda Amanda Nunes. She beat the likes of Aspen Ladd via TKO. She beat Raquel Pennington and Holly Holm via unanimous decisions. She TKO'd Ann Elmos, and she TKO'd Larissa Pacheco. Pacheco. She is a dangerous woman uh, when she's not fighting Amanda Nunes. So with all that set up, I think you know I'm probably picking Jermaine Duran to me here. Unless Juliana Pena could maybe get it on the ground, make it a grapple fest, but people have tried that before and it hasn't happened. Who are you taking? So I, I think you're right. I, I would be really interested to see if she can turn this into a grappling match. Because if you look back, I mean, she took Nico Montano down twice. She did take Valentina Shevchenko down, which is not an easy feat. And even if you want to go back, and, and granted it was before, you know, obviously she got pregnant and, and had her kid. But, like, she also took down Kat Zingano a bunch of times. She took down Jessica I a bunch of times. Like, Juliana Pena is a legit grappler in... in you know, if we're looking at Jermaine Durandamy's run, I mean, she did concede eight takedowns to Amanda Nunes in her last fight. D- does Juliana Pena grapple like Amanda Nunes? Hell no. But is it at least a path to victory for her? For sure. And if you look at the other people who are you, you consider to be, like, good takedown artists that Jermaine Durandamy fought, I mean, like, uh, Julie Kedzie all the way back in 2013 might be the last one who I think of as being, like, a really good grappler. She also took her down a couple of times back then. You know, I think of Aspen Ladd as a good grappler who I picked to take down Jermaine Durandamy a whole bunch of times, but that fight didn't last 16, you know, it lasted 16 seconds total. So, like, Aspen Ladd didn't get a chance to do that. I, I actually think Juliana Pena has a pretty good shot of taking Jermaine Durandamy down a bunch of times. I think the fact that this is a three-round fight and she could win two of them with early takedowns, I think that bodes well for her. I think if this was a five-round fight and this was in the main event, which, actually, if you're looking at it, both of them are ranked higher than, than Holm and Aldana when you compare them, right? Like, Durandamy is ranked higher than Holm. Pena is ranked higher than Aldana. It should be the main event. But, like, obviously, Holm's got the name value. But, like, given that this could be a five-round fight, if it was a five-round fight, I would 100% pick Durandamy. But I think I'm going to go with Pena in a three-rounder. Okay, I, I'm I'm going to respect your opinion on that. I'd like to see it, you know. I happen to like Juliana Pena, but time will tell, and the inactivity is what worries me. Hey, this is really our first all-female fights portion of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. We'll move to Loma Lugbome, a minus-130 favorite. Jin Yu Frey is a plus-110. I don't think the average UFC fan knows about these ladies, so break it down and tell us who you got. Yeah, th- this one's an interesting one for me because I was actually looking for a third fight to talk about in this segment. And, like, the the third fight from the top is, is uh, Jorgen DeCastro, who's coming off a loss against Greg Hardy. Not a super exciting heavyweight fight. I thought this one was more interesting because both of these two were actually huge parts of the Invicta 105 division and now moved to the UFC and there is no 105 division. I actually think this could wind up being, like, a contender fight if they were to add a 105-pound division and have maybe Michelle Watterson as sort of the champ down there, Lukbume had a really competitive fight with Angela Hill at 115, despite the fact she was giving up all that size. Junyu Fry looked really good in her debut against Kay Hansen before uh, tapping out to an absolutely crazy armbar. So the the fun part about this one is you are going to see lots of Muay Thai action, which I think is, is really exciting. They both throw good elbows from the clinch. They're both very fun with a plum. So I'm like Luke Bume here just because she uses her strength a little bit better than Fry. Fry is also, you know, getting a little bit older and, and it's shown that like, you know, she likes to lean on her wrestling, but 
I, I mean, Angela Hill failed at wrestling Luma Luke Bume, so like obviously I'm going to go with the younger, stronger Luke Bume here to to win a dirty fight in the clinch. Boom, or should I say Labume? Our underdog of the week is Jessen Ari, a plus one twenty dog over Luigi Benjamini. Why? So first of all, this is the most underrated fight on this card, and it's not even close. So both of these two coming off of two-year layoffs, Luigi Vendramini, actually, if you look at his only fight in the UFC, which is two years ago, it was a loss on short notice to Elizu Zaleski Dos Santos, who's a freaking killer, up a weight class, and he actually had a rear naked choke in towards the end of the first round. They, they wind up standing in the second round, and he gets a flying knee knockout loss. So he's an exciting guy, but I'm still taking Justin Ayari, who if you look at his last two fights, he's on a two-fight win streak with a two-year layoff, but he also pretty much beat Steven, Stevie Ray in that last fight. If you look at MMADecisions.com, all but one media member scored the fight for Justin Ayari. So I feel like we kind of forgot about him, but his striking and his just like simple technical one-two, one like it's very crisp. It's on point. He uses his punches to set up, you know, clinches against the cage. I think he's a fun guy to watch. And here at plus 120, and of course, we, we don't know what people are going to look like with huge layoffs. You mentioned that with Pena. But I still do think that there's a lot of talent in this fight, especially on ARE's side. All right. And wrapping things up, our parlay to play. Casey Kenny, a minus 275. Jordan Williams, a minus 150. So two favorites. Play them together, it gets you plus 127 odds. Break her down. So first of all, thanks to both of the friends of the show. It's not very often that I stick both of the guys who've been on our show in a parlay together, but I like them for very clear reasons. Casey Kenny fighting highly all the time. Elatang 2-0 in the UFC, so he's worth noting is very good. But also he really relies on his wrestling. And he's fighting Casey Kenny here, a guy who outgrappled Ray Borg. He outgrappled Manny Bermudez. He outgrappled Louis Smolka and got a one-arm guillotine. Like the only blemish on this dude's three-in-one record is Marab Devalishvili, who is an absolute takedown machine. And even then he had his moments. So like I think he's going up against a guy who relies too heavily on his wrestling and is going to wind up getting subbed by Casey Kenny. And then Jordan Williams, you know, I think here's another situation where the guy is a little bit smaller for his division, but he luckily in his first fight draws a guy coming off of, uh, you know, long layoff, having not fought for over a year, and also who kind of just like wants to, to throw punches from the outside. So like he's not fighting a guy who knows how to use his physicality well. He's got the wrestling background, even though, you like, like I said, he's a little undersized for middleweight. I still like him in this fight. Boom. That wraps up Fights, Dogs, and Parlays for UFC Fight Island. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Gumby, why don't you tell the people what they need to know and wrap the show up as a whole. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in, as you do each and every week. Wouldn't have a show without you guys, or we wouldn't have a show without Flow Combat, the mothership. So thank them for having us on once again. And we want to thank our sponsor, Maroon Social. And we want to remind you guys to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Top Turtle MMA. I'm Daniel Gubby Freeland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte. And we will see you next week.